if you're feeling, if you're out there and you're listening and you're feeling disenchanted with the system and wondering if it really matters or it does any good, I'm here to say, yes, it matters. <laughs> and it can do good if more people, if more good people were involved. So, um, so get out and vote. Welcome to this week's episode of Feminist Fiends and Quarantine Queens, our podcast that we created in the hopes of energizing ourselves through feminist discourse surrounding elements of pop culture. I'm Pate. And I'm Nellie. As we said last episode, during the month of October, we are focusing on election-related media, some fictional and others nonfiction. This week, we are tackling the Netflix 2019 documentary, Knock Down the House. Directed by Rachel Lears, Knock Down the House follows the primary campaigns of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Amy Villala, Cori Bush, and Paula Jean Swearingen, four female candidates who ran for Congress in the 2018 midterm elections. We are so excited to talk about this empowering and moving documentary with our guests. Today, we're super excited to have Dr. Paige Schneider joining us. Dr. Schneider is an assistant professor of politics and women's and gender studies at Swanee, the University of the South. She has a bachelor's from the University of Florida and a PhD in political science and graduate certificate in women's, gender, and sexuality studies from Emory University. Dr. Schneider's most current research agenda considers broadly resistance to women entering male preserves, such as politics and sports. Her research in the area of gender and politics examines the relationship between gender and election violence and transitional democracies, including Uganda and Tunisia. Her work on gender and sport considers the rise of women boxers in the global south. Her most recent publications can be found in the Journal of Gender Studies, Policy Studies UK, and in the book Building Inclusive Elections. Dr. Schneider teaches courses in the fields of gender and politics, political sociology, and LGBTQ studies. She is also one of my idols and favorite people, and we are so excited to have her join us in today's discussion. Thank you for being here, Dr. Schneider. Well, thanks, Nellie, and nice to meet you, Pate. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. So before we dig into our discussion, we'd like to remind folks to stick around to hear our action items and resources for the week. Stay tuned to hear those. During the month of October, we will be sharing action items having specifically to do with the election. Now, without further ado, let's dive into the show. So <clears throat> our first question is specifically about um, if gender, uh, if it was a factor in the outcome of these elections, particularly for Cori Bush, Amy Villala, and Paula Jean Swearingen, um, because they were not elected to the office that they initially ran for? And then what standard are women, particularly women of color, held to in the political world? That's a great question. Um, so, you know, it's hard to say how much of the um, variation and the outcomes of these candidates could be directly related to gender because 
it's hard to measure that. For instance, on surveys, when you ask voters, you know, whether or not they would support a candidate who was a woman or a woman of color, you're not necessarily going to get um, honest answers. So, you know, we look at kind of patterns over time. And we, one thing that we know for sure is that more women of color are running and more are winning. And so particularly since around 2014, 2015, there's been a really significant rise in the number of women of, colors running, women of color running for Congress and winning. So for instance, um, recent, um, in, I guess it was in 2018, there were five, let's see. Yeah, so there were five prominent black women who ran for Congress and won and four of the five women won in majority white districts. So, you know, that would suggest that women of color candidates, you know, most certainly can win and they can win and they do win with white votes. So voter, votes from white, uh, white voters. On the other hand, one thing that we have seen that's really um, disappointing and, and probably really discouraging for a lot of black female candidates is that they constantly face the electability question. Is that, you know, have you heard, have you heard of that before? Stacey Abrams faced it. You may have heard of her race. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, it was another question that I actually considered asking was like in, in something that the, the documentary kind of posed for me was thinking about especially in, in the case of primaries, whether like when you're thinking about who's gonna, especially in the case of the Democratic Party, beat the Republican candidate, you're thinking about who, and I think this really very much happened, um, I mean, vote for Joe Biden, but I think this very much happened in the primary for, um, for the presidential election, um, a lot of people were like, okay, well, we need to defeat Trump. Um, and we're still thinking that. But who's going to be the best candidate to do that? And to me, I, I know that like, plenty of the other candidates I would identified with more so both in terms of like, actual, I, I like characteristics and identity attributes, but then also like, the issues that they tackled and cared about. And the same is the case for like the example, example that you gave Stacey Abrams. And I think, um, I, I, I think when this documentary is talking about Alexandria versus, um, I'm now, um, Crowley. Joseph Crowley. Yeah. A lot of people are like, well, why are you going against someone that is so established in their role and, and is elect very clearly electable just because of how long he's been in that position. Um, so it was definitely a question that came up for me and I'd love to hear more about kind of your, your thoughts surrounding it. Well, you know, I think women still face that question and you mentioned, you know, good examples, Liz Warren, Kamala Harris, you know, Amy Klobuchar, right. They all face that question. Um, you know, and so if, you know, white women are, are still having to deal with the electability question. And so for black women, it's really a double burden. Um, and, and, you know, and it's really an unfair question because obviously men and often even black men don't have to deal with trying to justify their candidacy or prove somehow that they have what it takes. Um, and it's, it's unfair and unfounded because actually black women are 
disproportionately represented in Congress. There's, there's an over-representation of Black women based upon their share of the population. So Black women make up about 14% of all women in the U.S., but they're 18% of women members of Congress. And so obviously they're electable and they're winning in districts with the you know, majority white districts. And they also, you know, Black women have a long history of being in leadership positions and doing a really great job. So, um, so you know, I think that that's one thing that Black women really still have to face. And then, you know, for, for Alexandra um, Ocasio-Cortez, you know, she also had to face the like young single woman of color issue, yeah. which really then calls in not only calls, you know, uh, elect, calls into play electability, but also, you know, intelligence, are you experienced enough? Do you, are you capable enough? Because she was so young. So yeah, a lot of hurdles that women have to face that men do not. Yeah. There was a part in the documentary, it's when um, Amy Valella is driving in her car. And this is even kind of before the documentary really unpacks some of the huge hurdles that she's faced in her personal life with like with the loss of her her child um, and her kind of why she takes such a huge stance on healthcare. But even before that, when she's driving in her car and she's talking about basically all of the names that she's been called, that was like the first time in the documentary where I found myself just getting like so emotional, like to the point where I like, I didn't, I mean, we've talked about this on previous episodes, Dr. Schneider, but I do cry very easily in pretty much any, any movie or show. Um, Pate's laughing because it's true. I'll cry at like the Cheetah Girls or something like that. But, um, but like this, I was like, so um, like moves that I had to like stop the documentary and like take a second because it's just, it is something that I feel like, I mean, women, any kind of, and, and then of course, when you compound identity with other, other marginalized identities, which I recognize that I have the privilege of really only having one um, marginal identity, but like how those, just the, the added standards to which people are held um, and, and how and I mean, Alexandria talks about this right at the beginning of the movie when it comes to appearance, the kind of the, the additional level of which women are held, particularly women of color. And I just remember, I don't know, it, it just, I had like such a visceral reaction to it just because it was so um, unsurprising, of course. I mean, it's not like it was a new reality that I was coming to terms with when watching the documentary, but I think it's just it's good to be reminded of that over and over again. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it does a good job of kind of touching on it multiple times. Yeah. You know, we to think about the challenges that women of color have as candidates have to overcome. And then you mentioned um, Valela's experience with online harassment and all of the, the name calling. And, you know, so increasingly there's, there's research that's documenting this kind of online violence against women that can include, you know, really just just horrible, despicable, violent comments and threats. And actually the research is showing right now that women of color are targets more often than white women and women in general are targeted more than men. But, you know, again, women of color are getting a particular kind of, you know, violent hostility directed towards them. And so, you know, that's something that you have to take into consideration if you're going to run, you know, 
that you're getting death threats, you're getting rape threats. How serious is it? Is it, you know, could, is somebody actually going to try something? And I mean, that's kind of like, you know, that kind of psychological violence is like you're being stalked, right? I mean, it's, it can, it can feel really serious. So, so that's the thing that, you know, I, um, is, is something that didn't come up so much in the film, but we see this happening in real life, you know, um, out there, um, increase in an increasing level. Yeah, and that even on the subject of um, electability, but also likability, like I'm thinking about specifically um, Kamala Harris debating Mike Pence. And when I watched it and, you know, he tried to interrupt her and she said, Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking and like cut him off. I found that very empowering and almost saw myself in that moment as someone who has grown up almost like always being interrupted by male figures when I'm trying to speak. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, that, that then was turned. And then of course people are saying, oh, she's so unlikable. She's so condescending. She was just smirking at him. And like something I found very empowering was then turned and like made a joke or made another like, you know, bullet point to be like, oh, don't vote for this ticket because Kamala Harris is so unlikable. And I just thought that was very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, not interesting. It's like, it, I knew it would happen, but I, I didn't think something so empowering, well, something that I thought empowering, I was surprised to see other people kind of ripping into that. Yeah, you know, it's it's unfortunate because women really just can't win in terms of, you know, uh, how people perceive speech patterns and attitude and, you know, um, personality characteristics. I mean, it's it's like you're always trying to hit a moving target, um, and so you know, I I don't know what to do about that because there is a lot of scholarship looking at. Um, you know, how voters, what, how voters conceptualize leadership and what are the qualities that they look for in a leader. And there's still, you know, there's still mostly masculine characteristics, but increasingly, you know, people are saying things like collaboration, which women have, you know, an advantage on that particular indicator of, you know, collaborative leadership style. Um, but that doesn't really get at, I think, what you were, you're talking about, Pate, which is like, these are qualities, that they're, they're just like a part of someone's personality or just the way they speak or the way that they, you know, converse with others. And it's just, to me, it's so unfair to identify something like that. And like you said, kind of turn it on its head and turn it into, you know, a negative and, and a question of likability. And you just never see this with male candidates. I mean, you just don't see it. And so I don't know what to do about that. I don't know what we can do um, about that other than just as women to make sure we're supporting other women. Yeah, I feel like that's the only possible solution. I, I feel like I'm always like, this is a problem that seems unsolvable, but I'd love if we could shift a little bit. I mean, it's very much still in the wheelhouse of what we're talking about, but maybe um, shift to talking about the role that money plays in electing candidates. Um, and in particular, thinking about how women candidates are, or I guess the question would be, are women candidates at a disadvantage when it comes to fundraising? And then also the all of the candidates that this documentary talks about are or focuses on are 
grassroots campaigns. So kind of, I mean, this very much in the um, crux of this question, like what are the difference in tactics and strategies between grassroots movements and the machine of the political party? Um, So, I mean, I think first, if you look at differences by gender, there are some. And at first, the scholarship was a little mixed on this and suggested that women could raise as much as men. But some of the more recent scholarship for congressional races is showing that women probably aren't raising as much as men. But fortunately, you know, it's not all about money. And so you can see how AOC really overcomes that deficit in fundraising in the primary by mobilizing at the grassroots. And so that's something that women can do, actually still works to go door to door. And now you have to go with the mask on, but you know, it's, it still really can work if you can get out there and hit the streets and you don't mind spending day after day going out and meeting your neighbors and shaking hands and getting a army of volunteers to help you, that can actually um, do a lot and, and overcome some of the money deficit. But you know, the most important thing is that generally we find that for a congressional candidate, you have to raise a kind of certain amount of money to be competitive. There needs to be like a baseline that you meet or you really just can't compete in a modern congressional campaign. But, it, but certainly women can raise enough money to reach that and they can still win with that. But there's still, men, men still have a bit of a fundraising advantage and part, you know, part of that is, is related to professional networks. So, you know, men are still disproportionately represented in as CEOs and business networks, as entrepreneurs and finance, banking. And then when they're lawyers, they tend to be more likely to be lawyers in high paying, high powered legal careers as opposed to women lawyers. So, you know, there's definitely some, there's, there's still some, some roadblocks there in fundraising. For women of color, for women in general, but especially for women of color, the whole electability issue that again raises its, its ugly head because it's really hard to fundraise at the beginning of a campaign if people are constantly questioning whether or not your candidacy is viable and you could get elected. Like they're not going to start giving you that money. And that early money is so important that you have to, you know, be able to raise enough money at the beginning of your campaign to signal to other potential donors, especially big donors that you do have what it takes, right? And so it looks bad if you, if you can't raise money. And so the electability thing just is like dogging women candidates. So it's kind of a, a vicious bit of a vicious cycle there. But certainly we're seeing women win, we're seeing more women run. And so I don't think that money is gonna be a problem here. It's a huge problem in other countries, but I don't think it's gonna be a big roadblock here for women. Yeah, that's good to hear. And I, I think the documentary does highlight that sort of, but I, I do feel like that was something I was constantly questioning. I was like, okay, well, if there's no money, like what, <laughs> what then happens? But it seemed like it, they make it work <laughs> um, to a certain extent. And that's, I yeah. think, really comforting. You know, so one of the issues that's probably more important than money in U.S. politics is incumbency. And so, you know, so AOC's victory was, was astounding. It really was. And, and she's an astounding candidate mm-hmm. and she's an astounding woman leader. I mean, she's just got it. She has it. Um, and I thought that a lot of the other women candidates featured in the film also were just really astounding and had just a really fantastic um, potential to be really great leaders um, as well. 
But part of the problem with US politics is, you know, once you're an incumbent, it's really hard to knock you out um, and get you out of there. And most incumbents just stay and they keep getting reelected every two years in the House and every six years in the Senate. And so for like, for instance, Swearingen, she was um, Paula Jean Swearingen, you know, she ran in West Virginia against Joe Manchin. So, you know, he was just going to be hard to beat no matter who she was, how much money she raised, it was going to be hard to beat him because he didn't have any obvious deficits. You know, like he, he had, you know, huge support of the coal industry, of the business community, but he also like, if he could have done something really crazy and, it, and been exposed in a scandal, it would have really helped her a lot. <laughs> you know, a scandal would have helped her. Um, but it's just, it's hard to run against incumbents and win regardless if you're a man or a woman. I loved, um, AOC's use of social media and how we see that for a second in the documentary. But as someone who's on Twitter a lot, like I always see her tweets and like, I think that's really important and shows how like young people nowadays kind of interact with the candidates. Yeah. And that's how a lot of young people get their information on the candidates, which can be good. It can be bad. But um, I really like think that, you know, you could argue had a lot of weight in her possible, in, in the, her election because she had a strong social media presence. Yeah, I agree. It's really a democratizing platform, you know, so, so the, to the extent that especially younger candidates are able to mobilize through social media, then they don't need to have as much money. You know, they, they can get their name out there um, in other ways and, you know, virtually and digitally. And so, yeah, it, that could really um, actually help uh, more, more candidates, more female candidates achieve viability. Yeah. I mean, that was something that I think is so important about this documentary because I feel like it, it really does show, I mean, it's just interesting because I think the element of, um, I don't know, qualifications, especially in terms of presidential candidates has very much gone out the window in terms of the things you need to um, check the boxes you need to check. Um, other than money, that has been, it's been clear to me that that seems to be very much consistent. But it is what I think is so special about this documentary is that it really highlights that the the most experience you need to have is like being a, a like a working class American. Like that's probably the best experience that you could, I mean, having like, that is the knowledge that you need in order to like be uh, a viable candidate for Congress. I mean, ideally in a perfect world, that, that would be like the people that we're electing right routinely. Um, and I just think hearing in particular AOC story, I, I just hope is inspiring to um, women and young people in general to run for and just people in general um to like run for office just because i think it does i mean obviously aoc is an incredibly intelligent and high achieving person but also like it, the documentary really does focus on the fact that like she was working as a waitress like when she started when she decided to run for office so um i don't know i just think it it really kind of touches on these this this topic that i feel like isn't known by many voting Americans, so. Um, so the next question we wanted to ask was, uh, in what ways do you think Congress's actions would change if members accurately reflected the percentage of the population in terms of gender, race, age, class, and other identities? 
Um, in other words, which characteristics make an elected official an effective advocate for their constituents? And does the gender or race of an elected official always matter? Yeah, that's a great question. And we, you know, increasingly are amassing a large um, body of scholarship that engages the, those questions that you just mentioned. So there are some things that we know. Um, you know, so a lot of times this, these types of questions are, are referred to with generally as kind of, do women make a difference, right? So does it matter if you elect more women to office? And it's actually pretty complicated because we know that, you know, when we say woman, we mean a very diverse group of people um, and diverse not only around um, character, social characteristics like race and ethnicity, um, immigration status and so on, but also just political ideology. And one thing that I noted when I was reviewing recently some of the data for 2020 from the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University, which is a great resource, by the way, for you know, up-to-date facts and data on women in politics. Um, so there's a lot more women running as Republicans for the House and Senate this year. So generally the Democratic Party has been the natural home for women candidates, especially women of color. But it looks like the Republican Party has been upping its game and recruiting women to run for office because that's always been a real weak point for them. You know, they've, they've always been criticized because they are like overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly male um, in terms of descriptively what the party, what the Republican Party looks like. And so it looks like there's a lot more Republican women running for office, so we'll see how they do. But in general, we know that um, when the more women there are in a legislature, the more likely it is that issues that relate to women's rights, family, health, education, those types of policy issues are more likely to get introduced and to be prioritized. And, and then to pass. So it, it actually really does matter to have women there if, if you're interested as a voter in having more attention on these kinds of social issues. Um, or like, let's say you're feminist and you really wanna see women's rights um, agenda and goals you know, at the forefront, then having more women generally helps. However, that being said, um, obviously, if you look at the policy priorities and the policy positions, of Democratic women and compared to Republican women, you're gonna see a lot of difference. So it all, you know, party matters. <laughs> and so sometimes it's better to go with party and, and we've seen in, in the in research that's been done that like a progressive male candidate is, if you, are in, if you are a voter who wants to see policy that reflects progressive values, feminist values, I mean, you're better off supporting a progressive male than a conservative woman, right? And so, you know, so it, it does matter. Women do matter. Women do make a difference. But as more women get into office, there's more diversity amongst the women candidates and women elective officials. And so you see more conflict. Um, you know, you see that there's not this, you know, great consensus around women's issues um, amongst women. So, um, you know, it'll, It'll be, it'll be interesting to see over the next 10 years, I think we're gonna to continue to see more and more women get elected, uh, elected to Congress. So it'll be interesting to see what happens if we have about equal numbers of Republican women and Democratic women and, and you know how that plays out because it will be mostly white Republican women and it's going to be disproportionately women of color in the Democratic Party. 
Yeah. um, When we were coming up with this question, it made me think about uh, in your politics of poverty and inequality class, there was this graphic that you shared with us that was, I I apologize because I can't remember the source, but it was, um, I remember it was visualized with a donkey and an elephant and there were still a very small amount of um, women kind of in both of them, but then in, and I think it also visualized this in terms of race as well. Um, but I remember it being so minuscule, um, on, in the elephant. And so it would be really interesting, like you said, to see if kind of the playing field is evened out in terms of gender identity in, in both parties, like what that would then look like in terms of the results of that. Um, I can't imagine truthfully, but it's interesting. I didn't know that, that, the the women in the Republican Party running for Congress was at an all time high. That's really interesting. So yeah, and again, it's it, I think you know what we might see moving forward is that if the Republican Party becomes more diverse around gender and there's more female Republicans, but everybody continues to be almost all white. So the Republican Party is ninety percent white Anglo. I mean, it is literally about as white as you can get. Um, and the Democratic Party is, you know, a mix of, you know, about 45% white. Um, let's see, how many, uh, well, I may not get this right. It's probably like a, of all white men and women, it's about 65% of the party. And then the rest of the party is a mix of African-American, Latino, Asian, South Pacific, and so on. So it could be that what we're, we're, we're going to see is really parties that are, distinct racially rather than distinct by gender representation in the party. So that's probably not a good thing for America. No, definitely not. And I think, I mean, one thing I would be curious about, I wonder if you know the answer to this. So sorry to put you on the spot. I was just doing a quick search because I was curious. How do you think that will affect because I always think about, and this is definitely not a data-driven statement, um, but I just think of, uh, especially I remember around the time of the 2016 election or looking at kind of the, after that, the number of like under 25 voters or something like that, that in it, that voted and what party they were voting in. It was like overwhelmingly blue or something. I can't remember exactly, but I just wonder, it's so interesting to hear about that kind of shift in terms of gender within the Republican party. And then how I just think of there being a percent, like the upcoming generation as being more of the the registered Democrat than Republican. So I don't know. Well, I hope yes. that's the case. Yeah, Selfishly, I very much hope that's the case. But not to say that the Democratic Party is perfect. It's super not. But um, comparatively, I think they're tackling the more progressive issues. And hopefully, yeah, it's definitely the more progressive party. And the Republicans are the more conservative yes. party. You know that that's that's you know that's for sure. Um, you're, but you're right. You're absolutely right that your generation is is the most democratic. You know, um, in terms of their partisan ID. Um, than any recent generation. And, but there's one caveat and that is um, young Southerners. So if young Southerners were as democratic as the rest of young people around the country, it would really be skewed towards the Democratic Party. But um, 
But for instance, my recollection of data for 2016, the presidential election in 2016, was that it was the, the group, the group of younger voters that supported Trump were um, Southern whites under 30. Other than that, all other young people were supporting the Democrats and Clinton. So, so there's still, and of course, the, you know, the South is a pretty populated region. Um, and so, you know, I don't know how that's going to play out moving forward. I don't know if that, you know, right now that's the base of the Republican Party, the South. So, yeah, so we'll see. But, but there's still, you know, there's still a lot of young conservative Republican Southerners, apparently. Yeah, I live with them. <laughs> I'm from Alabama, so, and born and raised here. So yeah. I, I'm allowed to make that joke. She's got two brothers. <laughs> yeah. He's her family's token Democrat. I am. My younger brother actually did call me the black sheep of the family. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate that. Um, but. Yeah. Yeah. It's a Southern thing still for sure. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. I truly can't relate, but, <laughs> but I feel for you. Um, Pete. So, um, this has been a wonderful conversation and we want to ask the kind of age old question that we ask every episode. So what about knock down the house makes it a feminist documentary worthy of feminist analysis? All right. Well, we've talked a lot about an increasing number of women in politics. And so obviously this documentary showcases, you know, was it five fabulous women? Um, was it five or four? It's four. Four, yeah. four fabulous women. Um, who are, you know, jumping in um, with both feet and really doing everything that um, a candidate could and should do to win. Um, and so that, you know, I think that in and of itself showing the struggles and trials and tribulations of women candidates uh, really makes it, you know, feminist in, in, in that sense, because it's really focusing on women's experiences. And these are women also who happen to all be progressives. So they, you know, would seem to be the type of women who would identify as feminist or at least support a lot of feminist policy goals. But, you know, another thing that stands out to me, and you mentioned um, it earlier, Nellie, was, you know, the, the idea of the movement, of this being a movement. And that reminds me that, you know, women have always been overrepresented in social movement politics in the kind of outside of the formal system politics that comprises social movement organizing and mobilizing. So like you can go back to all of the major social movements like abolition, suffrage, obviously, but you know, even prohibition with the women's Christian temperance movement <laughs> and Francis Willard, who was uh, trying to get us all to stop drinking so damn much. Of course that didn't work, but, um, but anyway. <laughs> um, you know, so women have always been instrumental in social movements because they were locked out of formal political channels. So they, they couldn't run for office or they wouldn't win if they ran. And so they, they got involved in trying to make positive change, make, you know, make social change through movements. And so it's really cool that all of these candidates are associating with the, you know, a, a couple of organizations that are really trying to shake things up and change politics from from the bottom up, from the grassroots up. So I think that that also makes it really feminist for that reason. Um, well, I don't know if this is a reason that makes it feminist, but it's m my favorite 
like reason to, or my favorite thing that I've gained from this documentary is just like having, it felt like a one-on-one conversation with AOC and also these other um, like very powerful women in politics. And like, like I said earlier, my, like my perception of AOC on social media is different than my perception of her from this documentary because I think she's almost becoming a new Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the sense of she's kind of become a celebrity, mm-hmm. uh, especially for young women. Um, I know her speech on the floor when she was, you know, talking about when Congressman Yoder, I don't even remember his name, like, you know, called her a bitch and she kind of, you know, she gave a speech back in that. I've seen that like made into poster seen people make TikToks about her like she is a new up-and-coming celebrity and I found it so refreshing to be able to see like how she got there and she like her passion and her drive and like how she is a leader like from the ground up she isn't just like incumbent incumbent who like gets her power through networking or through money like she genuinely is here because she wants to change people's lives. And I found that like incredibly empowering and I loved watching the documentary and watching her in this. So I'm not necessarily sure if I can argue that's why I consider it a feminist film, but that was definitely my most empowering like takeaway from that is watching like women from all different backgrounds fighting for something that they believed in. Agreed. Yeah, I agree um, with what both of y'all have said. Um, I think, I, I think, I don't know if, again, I think this documentary is extremely feminist. I don't know if, I guess I appreciate also, and I think this in itself is, an, is, is feminist as well, but how the, not all, well, only one of the four women were successful. And I think it's really important to highlight the success because that's, empowering of AOC because that's empowering and uplifting but I also think kind of highlighting the one the huge the huge feat that these that all of these women like attempted to um attempted to take and then um the fact that three of them were unsuccessful like in the end well I I would consider them to be successful depending on how you define success because they really did stir the pot and knock down the house um but i think that and overall like 2018 was a, like a huge year um for women in congress but i think i think it is so important that the documentary highlights the the outcomes of these elections and how they weren't all quote unquote successful um in in getting elected and kind of the in not only highlighting the empowerment of AOC and these other women but then also kind of the harsh realities that women particularly women of color um face when attempting to run um so I don't know I I just I can't believe I hadn't watched it um yet truthfully so I'm really glad that we're talking about we talked about it today because it was a great excuse to watch the documentary and um, like I said, it made me cry, but in kind of all the right ways. So, um, yeah, definitely feminist and definitely worth the watch if you're listening and you haven't, you haven't watched it yet. You should. So, yeah, uh, 
we're gonna jump to our action items before we before we ask Dr. Schneider for um, her favorite quote from the documentary. So, Pate, do you want to start with action items? Yeah. So this week for action items, I believe Nellie and I are both doing two because the election is coming up so soon. We wanted to plug just a few extra organizations for good measure. Um, the first one I'm plugging is Run for Something. This is an organization focused on recruiting candidates under the age of 40 to run for state and local office. Um, since January 2017, Run for Something has recruited 50,000 young people across the country to run for local office. Um, and I think that is just something that's so important and powerful is to have young people um, not only being politically aware, but also stepping up and running for office if they, um, you know, see that they should. So the website for that is just runforsomething.net. And then the next organization I'm going to plug is called Fair Vote. And it is a nonpartisan champion of electoral reform that gives voters greater choice, a stronger voice, and a representative a representative democracy that works for all Americans. Um, and so they are just um, an organization that uh, through research, communications, and collaboration really um, attempts to have uh, fair elections and um, allows for um, true representation through our candidates in our um, Senate and House. So that website is fairvote.org. And now Nellie will share her organizations with us. Thanks, Pate. Um, I'd like to plug sheshouldrun.org. She Should Run is a nonprofit that has created a network of women considering running for public office with the aim of recruiting and training more women, more women as candidates. You can even nominate a friend to consider running. Um, she Should Run provides a variety of opportunities to take action and it also has a quiz to help you learn about what role you play, whether it's encouraging women to run, sharing your time and talents, or simply learning about women's political representation. Um, to, take, to learn more and take action, visit sheshouldrun.org. And once again, I want to plug powerthepolls.org. If you want to help stop your local polling place, sign up to be a poll worker by visiting powerthepolls.org. Poll workers get PPE training, and in some districts, you even get paid. There is a huge need for this, so please contribute if you are able to make sure elections run smoothly and everyone's vote is counted. Additionally, I want to encourage you to listen to last week's episode to learn about some of our previous resources we've plugged regarding upcoming, upcoming elections, including mobilize.us backslash 2020victory, votesaveamerica.com, and the Instagram account voting.school. Um, yeah, just we want to get to November 3rd knowing we did everything we could. So stay active and keep your feet on the gas. One thing I will say is that a lot of polls have come out recently, um, and I, I wonder if maybe we should have talked a little bit about this, but it's looking like Biden is doing really well, but if we know anything, it's to not get comfortable with the polls. and Never really trust the polls. Never <laughs> trust the polls. Just like, like <laughs> act like they're not there. <laughs> I mean, we can get excited, but still stay motivated, I guess. I uh, saw a tweet, oh my gosh, third time I'm talking about Twitter on this podcast, but it said, every time I see a poll, I allow myself 10 seconds of like, you know, feeling or 
you know, elation. And then I act like I didn't see it. And I think that's a good, you know, thing that we can go by. Yeah. (laughs) Good advice. (laughs) Um, Dr. Schneider, is there any resources or you want to plug or words of wisdom that you have for our listeners? (laughs) The, I mean, the, the resources were all great. And um, the one, I guess the one thing I would say is that that your generation has been kind of tagged or labeled as not being interested in formal politics, you know, party politics, and kind of being turned off by that. And so, you know, for instance, registering to vote and paying attention to who the candidates are and what they stand for, um, seems to be of less interest to people under 30 today than it was in the past. And I, under, I can understand that because I think that our formal political organizations and parties have really let us down. The problem is that with the system that we have right now, it's all we've got. <laughs> so the type of electoral system that we have, it just lends itself to a two-party system. And so I hope that young people will consider you know, the Democratic Party is really your party. If you're a progressive and you want to make change, then that is an institutional structure waiting for you to to own and to become involved in and to really use as your, you know, um, mechanism for change. So I hope that if you're feeling, if you're out there and you're listening and you're feeling disenchanted with the system, and wondering if it really matters or it does any good, I'm here to say, yes, it matters. <laughs> and it can do good if more people, if more good people were involved. So, um, so get out and vote. Oh, thank you. Um, that's, a, I mean, that's so important for everyone to hear. So I'm glad our listeners heard that. So uh, as always, we'd love to end the episode with a quote from the documentary. And Dr. Schneider, I know that you have one prepared. So if you want to share it, that would be awesome. Yes, so I picked the quote, uh, AOC's quote, um, I need to take up space. And if everybody remembers that part, she's sitting on the couch in her apartment and she's very animated and she's like, I need to take up space. I need to take up space. And that I just love that. I just wanted to go and hug her and say, yes, you do. Take up as much space as you need. <laughs> because, you know, women, especially women of color, especially young women, right, are constantly having to fight back against gender norms that females should not take up space, that we should, you know, it, it's, it's unattractive. You don't want to appear too masculine. You don't want to talk too loud. You don't want to, you know, be too animated and use your hands or whatever. Um, you know, and then the whole bitchy thing, like, you know, you're talking too much, you're talking too loud. And so she really, like, she knew that, that Crowley was going to try to peg her as immature, as not having the experience, you know, as not being competent because of her age, and he, he would never say this, right? But the perceptions are, okay, young female, young single female. So I just, you know, and then for her to win, it was just like, yes. So um, I want to just say that I hope that all the young women out there listening will take up more space and have your voices heard and don't be afraid to get involved and, and demand respect when you do. That was amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Schneider. And thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for that quote. And thank you so much for being a guest this week. We are so, so grateful. And I feel so energized um, after our conversation. So thank you. 
Well, thanks for inviting me. This was a lot of fun and it's great to see you, Nellie, and great to meet you, Pate. And I'll spread the word about the podcast. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thanks, guys, for listening. This has been Feminist Fiends and Quarantine Queens. Bye. Bye. Bye.